we're continuing on with our sermon series, 1 Timothy. Uh, we come to the halfway point. Uh, the first three chapters that we looked at emphasize the personal matters that relate to church. Uh, we remember that Timothy is Paul's son in the, in the ministry. He's the one that, that, that Paul has left in Ephesus. Um, and Timothy's having a bit of bother there. He's having a bit of trouble. And uh, Paul is writing to him to encourage him. And what he does, firstly, to encourage him is to simply say, stay there, stay in Ephesus. Then he tells him what he needs to do. You need to confront the false teachers, those who are teaching nonsense. You confront them. And then he gives him some teaching about church. He said, well, Timothy, this is how you pray and who you pray for. Uh, this is the foundation of the word that you need to build into the church. This is a role of men and women. This is a role of leadership within the church. And so those really summarize the first three chapters. And chapter four, we come to uh, this challenge of the false teachers, of those who are teaching the wrong things and how Timothy is going to challenge them, uh, how he's going to defend against these false teachers. And so chapter four is split into two parts. The first part we're looking at this morning, this afternoon, which is a description of the false teachers. And then it's a step for defense. What do we do uh, to deal with these false teachers? And then we apply it to where we are today as a church, as individuals. Uh, we are the most resourced generation of Christians that I've ever lived. You can go on to uh, YouTube or any other uh, social media outlet platform and you can watch sermon after sermon and listen uh, to everybody's teaching and preaching. We are so over-resourced in things that we are being taught in the Christian church. But the application today is how do we discern between what is false and what is true? And so we're going to take some lessons from what Paul teaches Timothy here uh, to help us today. And so the first five verses of 1 Timothy says this. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. It opens with a warning. Because Paul has already said with Timothy the problem that he's going to face when he comes to leading the church. Because he's already said these words in Acts 20. When he leaves Ephesus, he simply says, Know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This has now happened. Paul now gives the warning and now he's giving the teaching to deal with it. He, he, he simply highlights three dangers. Uh, the first one is this, it's the danger of false teaching because some people will wrongly believe. You could tell some gullible people anything and they will believe it. The same issue happens in church, that you can tell people things and they'll just believe it. It must be true because it was said from the platform. It must be true 
because he wears a tie at the front. It must be true because he's standing in a church. And so people often just simply believe stuff without actually checking it out. So there's a danger of false teaching. The second danger we see is the danger of deception. That some people will be deceived. That unfortunately, whether we like it or not within churches, some leaders have their own agendas. Some leaders have their own way they want to do things. So they deceive people into believing what it is that they want them to believe. And then the third thing we see is the danger of apostasy. And apostasy really is someone who once believed, but then chooses to deny the essential doctrines of Christianity. They fall away, not just from a personal faith, which maybe we would say is backsliding, that people would backslide and maybe come back. These people would fall away and deny the Christian truth. They would say, well, and these would be people that we would all know an example we would know people who even stood on this platform at some point and maybe led worship or the opportunity to preach or some people would have done that, would have believed, would have uh, I've left the impression that they're living for Christ and something happened to them and they simply fall away and simply deny the truths of Christianity almost like it was just a stage of their life that they were going through. And so to summarise this bit, we see that they would be people we would look at that simply those that have a disowning of Christ and, and a departure from the truth. And this is what was happening here in Ephesus with Timothy. And the second thing we see is to describe them is this someone who falls away from the faith because they fail to love the truth. Because one thing we have highlighted all the way through this teaching series is this, is we've got to be people who are grounded in the truth of God's word. It's not enough just to come to church and hear nice stories and funny stories because that, though it encourages us, it does not sustain us in the difficulties and the challenges that we face week in, week out with the stuff that's going on in your life. What will sustain you is your life being grounded in the truth of the foundation of God's word. There is no alternative to that. And so it's important for us to love other things where church is connected. The most important thing to love is the truth. The first thing we should notice is that this should not surprise us. Even Jesus says in the parable of the sower, and you know that there are the seed will fall on four types of ground. This is one of the types of ground in Luke 8, 13. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. And so the key there is these people who hear it, agree with it, accept it, but when the difficulty comes through the time of testing, they simply just fall away. Why? Because they don't know what it is to be sustained by that which they should have built their Christian life on, which is our responsibility, which is what we have to do. So Paul, uh, the Spirit reveals to Paul, it tells us, that the era of time that that's going to happen uh, would be the latter days. He was very specific, explicit and clear. Now let me explain something here because we, people get into a lot of confusion about, you know, we're in the last days, have we started the last days, have we been in the last days, uh, are we halfway through the last days, uh, you know, everybody gets confused. I'll clear it up for you because we're to bring clarity. The latter days are simply a description of the time between when Jesus ascended to heaven the first time, which we read about Acts, and when he comes back again. 
So when people say to me, we're in the last days, you're right, we are in the last days. But the apostles believed they were in the last days. We are in the last days. So our sign So when Paul writes this, he said, this is what's going to happen. We should not be surprised at this happening. So we must not read this and think of it, well, it's not for me. I'm strong in my faith. There will be nothing that will pull me away from my faith. I'll not abandon what I believe because everything is, is going so well. We must take this as a warning to simply say, actually, we must make sure we avoid and recognise the pitfalls and the things, but also the pattern and the strategy that the enemy uses. And there are two things that the enemy does to us as believers. The first one is this, be aware the enemy does not want you to sin, he wants you to quit. He does not want you to sin, let me explain. Your sin has been dealt with. You do something wrong, we all do something wrong, we sin. It says the cross of Jesus Christ has already dealt with that. We come, we confess our sins, 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we know that already, it's already there. What the enemy wants us to do is he wants us to quit. He wants us to give up. He wants us not to rely on Jesus Christ for everything that we need in our lives. So we'll do everything that we do to make us quit. Don't need to pray today. You're busy, you've got work. So just get the coffee before work. Don't worry about reading your Bible. You can catch up tonight. And we never catch up tonight. All of these things are like, well, that, that's not that. Listen, that's the strategy and the pattern that he uses. Don't need to go to church today. So, no, just you, you go off, sun's out. So just go to the beach, the park, da, 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 all of that. And people say, well, that, that does happen. It's a strategy the enemy uses. He's not interested in you sinning. Now, that's not an excuse to sin because a pastor says you can go out and sin. It's not. What it is, is this. He wants you to quit. He wants you to give up. And so that's the first thing that he uses. The second thing that he does is this is not only the tempter enticing people into sin, but also a deceiver seducing people into error. If you don't believe this, read Genesis way back at the beginning when the enemy tempts the woman to say, did God really say not to eat the true tree, the fruit from the tree in the garden. Did God really say? Those doubts are there that causes the deceit. And this is how people get tripped up. This is how they fall into to the plan. So th- this is what happens here. Excuse me. And what happens is false teachers spread this wrong teaching. Gullible people listen. They take the teaching on board and fail to use discernment in affirming truth and rejecting error. That simply lots of people just want an easy Christianity. It would be okay to take the bits that you like. Often, those of us of a certain age will remember the pick and mix in Woolworths where you could go in and you could take the sweets that you wanted. You didn't want the stinking lemon sherbet. You didn't have to get them. You could take the ones you wanted and then you went to the weighing machine and realised you had just spent seven quid on a bag of sweets. But the pick and mix was just simply, I could have what I wanted. That's been in church for years. I'll have what I want. I'll pick this but not this. I'll do this but not this. And there's no biblical description for that at all. It says actually we have to take it all. And simply what's happening here is this, is Timothy's teaching what we have said all the way through, 
is being grounded in the truth is what discerns false teaching from true teaching. There are lots of people that listen to absolute rubbish today and they cannot discern whether it is true or whether it is false. The only way you can discern whether it's true or false is by opening your word, the word of God, and studying it and being grounded in the truth. Because just because you hear it doesn't make it true. And so you've got, to, you've got to use what I consider to be one of the most undervalued gifts in church, which is discernment. What is right and what is wrong? How do I discover what is right? By being grounded in the truth of God's word. Because Paul sees it as so important because he's telling Timothy to stay. And the reason he's telling him to stay is command these men not to teach these certain, these false doctrines any longer. But Paul then tells us, Who's spreading the false teachers? He names them. He, he says they're hypocritical liars. They're hypocritical liars. Those who willingly obey the falsehood to justify their sin or pride. Our problem in the church today is this, is his reinterpretation of scripture. I don't like what the Bible says, I'm going to change it. I don't like what it means, so I'm going to change it. And it's been a problem from the beginning. Those are the false teachers that are teaching it. Oh, well, it doesn't fit in 2021, so maybe we need to change it a little bit. Since the Bible is not there to be reinterpreted, the Bible is there for us to be obedient to it. And the problem is these hypocritical liars that come in, as Timothy says, as far as Paul writes to Timothy, because to be hypocritical is to deliberately pretend and liars are deliberately false. So Paul is being as strong as possible here by describing these false teachers. He's not telling us all these not-so-nice men that just have a different view, a different opinion. Paul's giving it direct. He's simply saying, these hypocritical liars, these people that simply are telling lies so powerful that there is an evident spiritual dynamic behind it. They can say things to people and I get concerned when I, the phrase that people use, oh, I was sitting and the Lord revealed this to me and it's something that's not backed up in the word, it doesn't say it in the word, but God has almost revealed it to them and them alone. They've set themselves up as something, in a sense, exceptional, something beyond the church. That's dangerous. Because what we believe has to be grounded in the truth of God's word. That's how we discern it. We cannot do anything else with it but that. You see, if there is a spirit of truth, there is also a spirit of falsehood, whose teachings gain entry into the world, the church through human agents. Paul's already trying to address it with Timothy when he says at the end of chapter 1, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hermenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. He speaks about the conscience there. We're going to just take a few moments to look at that because we must understand how the conscience plays a part in our lives being grounded in the truth. Because we know that a conscience is that which is defined as part of the human psyche which simply is our mental anguish or our feelings of guilt when we violate it. If you do something wrong, we talk about the guilty conscience you know, you do something and though nobody's quite sure whether you did it, your conscience said you did it. In our house, 
there were two tins of appetizers sitting in the fridge. I drank the first one. I also drank the second one. I wasn't supposed to. But then I was asked who drank the second one. Now, I didn't lie about it because I didn't say anything. But I had a guilty conscience. And eventually, after my wife had sat with Ruth and Abigail, which they deserved, it says I had to confess because I had drunk it, both of them, and there was none left. And that's a guilty conscience. We're aware of something that has happened that inside we know that we have done something that we know we shouldn't have done. That's a silly illustration, but we could relate that to absolutely anything. He says, you know, the, the conscience reacts, doesn't it, to one's actions, thoughts, and words, but the New Testament uses it. Uh, in a sense to to help us understand what it is that God wants to teach us because Paul mentions it several times when he talks about his own conscience being good or his own conscience being clear because he examined his own words and deeds and found them to be in accordance with his morals but more important his value system because his value system is how he lived and how he lived was based on his conscience and his conscience had to be clear and it had to be good because he got his values from there. And his values came from the word of God, which is how he distinguished or discerned between what was truth and what was false. Because the New Testament portrays the conscience as a witness to something. Uh, sorry, let me just move on. It portrays the, as a witness to something. It says the second thing that it does is the conscience is a servant of the individual's value system. And the problem is with most people is we ignore our conscience. We know we should be doing something. The illustration that's used here is these false teachers have simply, they've had their conscience seared so they cannot feel anything or they're made aware of anything they'll do wrong. We know it's important for us to feel something. If you've got something wrong with you and you go to the doctor and he says, where does it hurt? And he says, well, it's sort of around here. So then he starts pushing and tell me when it hurts. Ah! So he knows exactly the place where it's hurting. The dentist is the worst, isn't it? He takes that hammer, sticks it inside your mouth and taps the tooth. Tell me which tooth hurts. And he says, ah, you know which one hurts. He's trying to figure out, you see, there was no feeling for these. No feeling of pain conscience has become so dull that actually they can't aware of anything and yet the new testament the bible teaches us that conscience is so important because our value system comes from it because our value system is based upon the word of god and discerning what is right and what is wrong so there are three things we must do when it comes to our conscience the first thing is this we must inform our conscience of right and wrong through scripture there is no substitute for scripture, no podcast, no worship song, nothing on the God channel, nothing anybody else tells you. He said there is no substitute of being informed unless it's by scripture. And when we get informed by scripture, it teaches us to discern what is right, what is wrong, what is true and what is false. When we do that, we then see we must submit to our conscience by obeying it. Because that's what God is using. He's using us to say, actually, listen. He says, what I'm saying to you, I'm saying on the inside. Does this make it right? Is this right? Is this wrong? 
says we're feeling it in a sense in here. Though we don't go on our feelings, they are a good, in a sense, indicator of the things that we do because we know when somebody suggests for us to do something and we feel, oh, I'm not sure we should do that, you know, that's the first indicator. But if we've got the value system right and we've got the, the building our lives on the truth of God's word, we will know what decision that we have to make. Often people say, oh, I don't know what decision I have to make. Well, what does the word of God say? What does the spirit say? And the third thing we must do is this, is we must protect our conscience by not feeding it evil. We mustn't look at it and say, if you are listening to something, you have to judge whether it's right or wrong. You cannot just listen and say, that's okay. It was said in a church, it must be right. We must judge what is being said and how helpful it is for us. Because if we don't, we will let all sorts of stuff in that will damage us. This is what is happening here with Timothy. This is what is happening here in the church in Ephesus. False teachers are coming in and they're gathering groups around them, speaking all sorts of nonsense and then it's actually pulling them away from church. It's legalism at its worst. Is teaching people to apply something from the Bible that is not taught in the Bible or has been misunderstood or misunderstood and reinterpreted. You see, what was happening here, it's man-made rules coming in. There were two areas that the false teachers are teaching on. They're simply saying this, you would be more holy if you didn't marry or you would be more holy if you didn't eat certain foods. And actually, they're teaching this. It's absolute nonsense. There's nowhere in the Bible does it say that, and I'm going to prove that in a second, that these people believed they were becoming more holy because they were sacrificing something. So when they went to McDonald's, instead of getting the double quarter pounder with cheese, they were getting the plant burger and thinking that would make me more holy because it's abstaining from certain foods. Or maybe it's been single for my whole life, even though I have the desire to get married. That would make me more holy. And they're simply just mad, bad and sad superstitions that actually don't have any part to play in anybody's Christian life. It's false teaching designed to try and make us earn holiness or make us more holy before God. You see, the two issues, marriage and food, simply relate to the two most basic appetites of the human body, sex and hunger. Natural appetites that can be abused, degenerating into what they were not designed and created to be. And all sorts of people down through church history have simply said to their followers, well, if you don't do this, that'll make you more holy. Don't get married, don't eat this, do all of this. And Paul then comes and challenges them. Because he says this, he says, he's not writing that everything is good. He says, everything that is created by God is good. Well, who created the food? Well, God created the food. Who created marriage? Well, God designed marriage and created marriage. And so we see that actually our argument here in discerning between what is false in what they're teaching and what is true from Scripture is shown here. Because the first thing we do is the Word of God sanctifies food in the sense that God gives two general commands to mankind to eat the good things of the earth. Genesis 1 verse 29, here's the first argument. God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. Every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And then for us sausage and bacon lovers, Genesis 9 verse 3. 
Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So what's God saying here? He's saying, listen, do this. He says, you want to eat the plants and all of that? Go and do that. That's fine. You want to eat the double quarter pounder with cheese? Go and do that as well. None of it has anything to do with being more holy. It's just simply food to eat that God has created. Those people who stand up and say, well, I think all Christians only need to eat the plants because it's destroying the cows and all of this and that. Listen, that's not relevant or it's not true. You make the choice but it has nothing to do with being holy because it tells us here that God has instituted and given the food to be eaten. Everything else is personal choice. He does the same with marriage in Genesis 2 verse 24. But it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's simply way back in the beginning, God institutes marriage. Since this is what it is, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, that shall become one flesh. And simply he's saying, this is the institution. Nothing has changed from here. He says it doesn't say anywhere, if you're called not to get married and that's God's, well listen, that's, that's the plan that God has for your life. If, if you are married, that's a plan that God has for your life. It has nothing to do with holiness. And so we must make sure we don't listen as the people were listening in Ephesus that somehow their holiness was attributed to this that I forced myself to be single. I forced myself never to marry. Or I'm married and it's a burden, it's a sacrifice. Don't tell your wife that. You know, listen, this is the way that God has created to be. It's instituted. Nothing changes that. And you see, we may live in the world today of 2021 where people say you can live together, you can sleep together, you can have a family together, you can get married, don't have to get married, whatever way you want to do it and stuff. It says that may have a place in the world, it doesn't have a place in the church. Because the discernment of the truth of God's word is simply this, man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they become one flesh. That might not be popular opinion, but we're not into popular opinion, we're into standing on the word of God. And so we discern what is true and what is false, and we build our lives upon that foundation. But Paul then gives us the key to all, mentioning it twice. He just says, receive with thanksgiving. This is really the key to it. This is trips up the false teachers, trips up the people who want to use legalism. Because Paul says, you know what God wants you to be more than anything? Be thankful. You want to eat the plant burger? Thank God. You want to eat the Big Mac? Thank God. You want to be married? Thank God. You want to be single? Thank God. He says all of it is to do with thanksgiving, that actually this is all God has created for the good. This is a challenge against the false teachers, because how we are to live is to determine, recognise, acknowledge, appreciate, and celebrate the gifts of the Creator. You see, this is a problem sometimes when it comes to legalism. Years ago, it used to be if you had a TV in your house. You know, now everybody's about six TVs in their house. And the problem is never having a TV in your house. The problem is what you're watching on the TV. <sighs> what do you mean? I said, well, that's the problem. It's like social media. People say, oh, you know, social media is not the problem. You know, they're sitting and scrolling through it in church. People are putting their phones down quickly. <laughs> so scrolling through it when you should be doing other things. He says, we should be praying and reading your Bible. So like church, when people say to me about church, we say, Sunday, I remember early on as a Christian, 1993, I was a very young man. 
and I just got saved. And I went to church in Birmingham, church very traditional. And I was wearing these purple trousers. And purple trousers were fashionable in Birmingham in 1993. <laughs> Wasn't that a bad fashion state? They were fashionable. And I remember going to church and somebody saying, you shouldn't be wearing those, that style of clothing to church. And I thought, I had no idea. I didn't grow up in church. And then just to rub salt into the wound, I turned around to them and said, that's okay, I won't wear them next week when I leave church today. I'm just going to the Iceland next door because the church was next door to Iceland and I'm going in there to get gravy for Sunday lunch for my mum. <gasps> they were horrified that you would shop on a Sunday. And, you know, sometimes we respect people's right to have the Sabbath and things like that. And, and in that sense, you know, but when it becomes a legalistic rule, that's where the problem is. You know what you need to do on a Sunday? You can do whatever you want on a Sunday as long as you're in church. I think that solves all the issues, doesn't it? When you're in church, it simply says, I'm here to worship God, break bread, hear the word. We get caught up in it. What can I do after church? But listen, if you've come and you've worshipped God, it says you can do what you want on a Sunday. Now, you can't sin on a Sunday. I mean, I'm not giving you an excuse to go and sort of do the wrong things and say, Pastor says you could go out and get blocked or something like that. No, he didn't. <laughs> he said, you can do what you want because you're in church. So people who complain often about, oh, church is Sundays for church and we should do this on Sundays and stuff. And they said, listen, be in church. That's the most important thing. We get caught up in the legalism of it. Because often teachers come and say, oh, well, no, you can't do that because that makes you less holy. What makes you holy is your relationship with God. Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I loving people? Am I caring for them? That's the challenge that's presented here in 1 Timothy 4 as he comes to challenge the people, the false teachers who are just teaching nonsense. And I want to challenge you because this is a challenge. Check what you're listening to. Check what you're reading. Check what you're hearing. How does it help in your walk with God? Because it's only what you do in between church, because we only have that time there in church uh, for us to teach and just challenge people to do this over the next week. Because we come to the end of the, today and we see this, that what is more important than anything that Paul teaches all the way through Timothy is this. He teaches him to be loyal to God, obedience to the word, and a love for Christ. Those three things above all else is what Paul is trying to leave with Timothy as he challenges him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word because, Father, we realise that, Father, not all things we can see clearly sometimes. Father, and as we did in the first service, we pray for everybody gathered here today. That, Father God, in the areas of their life, Father God, that they need discernment between what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false. I pray that you would give them their answer by your spirit, Father God, not by a reinterpretation of your word because of the culture we live in, but, Father God, by the foundation of the truth of your word. I pray that over every single person gathered here, that God, you would reveal to them, Lord, through your word, what you would have them do. For Father, that is more important than anything. And we thank you for your challenge of your word. Help us to be responsible for what we read, what we listen to, what we're hearing, what we're seeing. But Father, all of that affects our walk with you, Father God. And our desire here, Father, is to simply celebrate and give thanksgiving to you for everything for all the goodness that you've done in our lives. And we thank you for that today in Jesus' name.